Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. At this moment in the pandemic, public health experts and local leaders have focused on the importance of getting a COVID vaccine booster. But there are still people who haven't gotten the first shot, including Hispanic residents. Connecticut officials say more than six out of 10 Hispanic residents have received at least one dose, compared to more than seven out of 10 white residents. Today, where we live, we look at vaccine hesitancy in the Hispanic community and find out how disinformation and misinformation contributes to this issue here and across the nation. Coming up, we hear from outreach workers at different nonprofits in our state who are in local neighborhoods, educating residents about the vaccine and sometimes helping them get shots in the arm. First, joining us now on Zoom is Nora Benavidez, Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at Free Press. Nora, welcome to our show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Nora, there have been uh, numerous reports on Hispanics and media consumption in recent months, and they found that uh, Hispanics are more susceptible to misinformation because of the time spent online and also the sites where they're getting news and information. So tell us about this issue uh, across the country. Well, you know, thank you so much for having me. And it's one that's a really difficult conversation to have because, you know, we don't have a full grasp over how every community is unique. And we know that communities are not a monolith. And certainly the Latino and Spanish speaking communities that we've been working with and trying to understand are very different all over the country. But there are some themes that have uh, bubbled up over the last few years. And part of what we have seen is, one, the, the way that Latinos and Spanish-speaking communities are going to different social media platforms uh, to consume information through group chats on WhatsApp. Um, the way that there is a lack of local news in Spanish that is really driving Spanish-speaking communities, for example, to more junk content. And I think what that means is, you know, they're vulnerable in very unique ways. So instead of being able to have robust local journalism, for example, on a specific issue, there are lower quality options for news and for information about a whole range of things, COVID being one of them. Um, And the ways that these kinds of false and misleading narratives occur are very insidious. They are the suggestible comments in WhatsApp chats. They are the threads from very low quality news websites, which I call pink slime websites. They kind of, uh, you know, masquerade as credible and they're very low quality, often contain quite a bit of mis and disinformation. And so as it plays out, that means that I think 
uh, across a lot of different minority communities and specifically Latino and Spanish speaking, um, they're, they're really getting less quality news and less options. And so vulnerable to myths and disinformation in very unique ways. There's been a lot of focus on big tech companies and content moderation and looking at uh, Facebook. Um, and so when we think about how uh, content, uh, where it first appears, you had mentioned uh, many in the Latino community are using WhatsApp. And so how that information travels from Facebook to WhatsApp and the fact that there may not be um, efforts or uh, less of a chance for fact checkers to intervene there, Nora. Yeah, this is a, some of the work that we've been doing at Free Press for the last, oh, year, year and a half, trying to understand the role that social media companies play. And I think over the last several months, we've seen a kind of crack and it, in a positive way in learning and understanding a bit more under the hood. You know, what is happening on social media platforms that would allow and create more vulnerability for Spanish speakers. Much of what we found is that uh, platforms like Facebook, for example, are vastly under-resourcing the moderation and enforcement of the worst content in non-English languages. And so about 87% of their resourcing on moderation and enforcement goes to English content which means there is so much out there, not just in Spanish, but in Korean, in Russian, in other languages that is not getting the same kind of robust fact checking by the platform. In addition, I think there are these ways that we're just, we still don't have enough data to understand how bad it is, though we have some evidence now that it is far worse in Spanish than in English. And so that means that the the just sheer quantity, the volume of disinformation and misinformation on social media platforms is so much higher. Not to mention the what we've also seen in regard to COVID is really interesting data that Hispanics are also receiving less credible information about things pushed from the World Health Organization than their white counterparts, which means that minority communities, Black, Latino, Native Americans, for example, are not given by Facebook as much credible content that is supposed to help inoculate people or debunk and help walk back vaccine hesitancy and other concerns about COVID. That statistic you shared is really troubling. 87% of uh, moderation resourcing for English content only, uh, Nora. So thinking about how Facebook uh, you know, just isn't spending the money or effort uh, to make uh, this platform safe in so many parts of the world. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think it's a good moment for us to also step back and think of this as a global problem. Um, because it, it really is. And there's a kind of, you know, U.S.-centric way of conceiving of this, but uh, it really is global. And what I, as I sit with it over these past few months, once that statistic came out, I, I can't help but think that it feels like a really kind of racist undertone to the moderation and the role that social media platforms play in our information consumption. Um, we're doing this interview in English, of course, but for the you know hundreds of thousands of people across the world that speak other languages, the millions across the world, and then people here in the United States, they're just really left, I think, with less options, less uh, options for 
the way they consume information, how they can turn to things, and then the credible information that they have that would otherwise help bolster their trust. Uh, we've used the term disinformation, also misinformation. And can we talk more about those distinctions, Nora? I'm looking at a quote from Shorenstein Center Research Director Joan Donovan, who said Spanish language disinformation happens because these voters will make a difference in election outcomes. So thinking about the intent here. Mm. Well, uh, at, you know, at the risk of sounding like I'm giving a, a teaching lesson, I will not. But uh, <laughs> disinformation is really information that has either been created or spread or both with the intent to deceive, to manipulate. And misinformation is just false information. So that could frankly be an error in a news outlets reporting and the way that news outlets issue retractions is just a great example of misinformation. It's false. It's wrong. Um, news outlets can correct that and they should. But disinformation is really the kind of insidious um, manipulated tactic where there is very much a maligned intent behind it. And what's interesting is that there could be disinformation created and spread online that we may engage with. But what is so interesting is that, as an example, Lucy, you could maybe see that piece of disinformation about COVID, for example. And in not knowing and not fact-checking it, you may share it thinking you're really uh, engaging in your civic duty. You know, you're sharing with your friends and your family on social media. You're uh, perhaps thinking to yourself, oh, everyone needs to know this. And so you share it and it really does then become misinformation. And so there's this really interesting and critical role that each of us can play in stemming the spread. Uh, when we think about the timing also, uh, you know, we're talking about COVID-19 for this show and uh, vaccine uptake, but with the midterm elections uh, coming up, uh, Nora, again, how, uh, you know, this can uh, really be a problem, right? Uh, when we see this kind of information being circulated and not fact-checked uh, and how that will have an outcome at the polls. Absolutely. And we know it will because it has before. Um, and the, there's really been a kind of change in how much we know about the problem and its relationship to voters and to the way voters distrust our electoral process. Um, and specifically how Latinos and immigrant communities really do have a kind of existing distrust of public institutions and disinformation can play on those existing feelings and the sentiment of distrust. And so what we've seen in 2016 uh, was, for example, that black voters were targeted with messages encouraging them to feel that like their vote wouldn't count. In 2020, we saw Latino and Spanish speaking voters targeted uh, in very specific places like South Florida and otherwise, uh, you know, in various one offs, really hyper local and sophisticated narratives that essentially make people feel nervous to go vote. Uh, the kinds of narratives that would make immigrants or Spanish-speaking communities concerned that they may not be allowed to vote if they don't speak English. Um, the kinds of things that really do affect our electoral outcomes. And so in 2022, I anticipate this will be um, very much the case. And I even speculate that what we'll see is even more kind of 
um, playing up of the big lie and the the sentiment that the election in 2020 was stolen and that we must continue to guard against elections being stolen. So I think it's just going to be something that we see more and more of that plays on people's distrust of our institutions and our election officials. So we've talked about the links about how this has played out in political content, uh, but I'm wondering if we can circle back now to, to when we think about COVID-19 uh, and uh, where we are in the pandemic and how this has played out in communities uh, where this uh, uh, disinformation in, in Spanish has been allowed uh, to linger. Well, this is when it gets really hard. And I, I just, I don't shy away from talking about how hard and difficult the, the conversation is because not every piece of individual content is a hundred percent lie. So much of disinformation has a kind of kernel of truth, something that feels maybe credible, or it, it even builds on a tiny, tiny example of something that's real. But we've seen efforts to pick and choose data about the COVID vaccine. And this is a great example because um, there are instances where very trusted people in communities are promoting these lies, saying that COVID vaccines are leading to deaths, that vaccines are not only leading to, but then causing deaths, and playing on existing fears in communities about whether they can or cannot trust public health officials. And so these types of lies are not, they're not outright lies. They are really kind of like mostly lie and then this enough of something that feels credible that a community will feel um, like it's evocative and it, it really does play on something that they already feel. Uh, you know, coming up, we're going to be hearing about a local efforts in Connecticut to help dispel these misconceptions uh, in uh, Hispanic and Latino communities, Nora. But I just wanted to ask you, you know, when we think about how these conspiracies continue to be repeated, the, the role that media can play uh, in, in, yeah. in the time that we're in right now. This is one of, I think, the most important solution areas. And I do believe we need comprehensive solutions. You know, we need to think about the role individual social media users play and how we each can be more empowered. We need policies that would kind of take on and think about careful regulation of platforms. But we also need the media to play a role in this. And there were some very meaningful examples in the 2020 election and throughout COVID that I think have shown how engagement journalism, the, the effort to reach out to communities and meet them where they are, to answer questions that they have and to mine those questions is so, so incredibly important. As is, and I don't want to seem reductive, but I, I think the power of headlines is one that's a really important issue. And I will be honest, I, I think many people, including myself, do not read articles all the way through often. And so what people will do is we get snippets of information from headlines or from the lead, you know, the intro of a news article. And I think it's really incumbent on editors to also think carefully about what's just a lower attention. There's so much volume now that we're all taking in and the media and editors in particular, I think have a really powerful role to play in helping to make sure that a headline, for example, doesn't simply repeat a lie. We know that psychology has often shown us that the more a lie is repeated, the more we believe it. And so there has to be very careful contextual framing for the way that readers then can consume information.
You're hearing Nora Benavides here on Where We Live, Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at Free Press. She's going to stay with us as we hear again from local health care providers and nonprofits about some of the myths they're encountering in communities, many of which originate online and how they're working to dispel them. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Even before the COVID vaccine was available, outreach efforts began in places like Hartford to hand out PPE and talk with residents about their questions and concerns in the pandemic. Those efforts ramped up this year and focused largely on vaccine accessibility. Now, when outreach workers hear misinformation about COVID and the vaccine, how do they respond? CT News Junkie reported on efforts to boost vaccine rates in the local Hispanic community. Kenneth Barella, CEO of Hispanic Health Council, says part of the outreach work is directing people to accurate sources of information on COVID-19 and on vaccines. Joining us now with more on Zoom, Dion, Dion Cote, Director of Wellness and Health Management at the Hispanic Health Council. Dion, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I mentioned some of these outreach efforts that started even before the vaccine was available. I'm wondering if you can talk more about those efforts and how they've ramped up in these, what, almost 21 months? Yes, yes. So at the height of the pandemic, um, several of our community health workers worked beyond the scope of their original work. We pretty much all hands on, all hands on deck. Um, we went out into the community canvassing and providing COVID-19 education information about the disease itself prior to the vaccine being available and distributing PPE and just talking to people about how to keep themselves and their families safe. Um, and then once we had the vaccines, our messaging changed a bit and we pivoted to getting people vaccinated as best as we could. So where are you mostly doing your work, Dion? I'm thinking, um, you know, earlier this year when we heard from Hartford health officials when they said the city had one of the lowest vaccination rates in the state. Is that still the case? And what are some of the conversations that are happening in the community? Yes, that is still the case. Um, as of last week, December 8th, just about 59% of all 
eligible Hartford residents were vaccinated. So we've had to um, really pay attention to this data and try to expand our reach. We are everywhere in Hartford, especially in the most hard to reach areas. We do canvassing door to door. Um, we go to community events. We table at very uh, places that community members frequent a lot to distribute information, answer questions. Um, sometimes we even pair up with vaccination clinics to help answer questions on the spot to get those who are on the fence vaccinated. So how often are you running into myths or, or misperceptions and conceptions that we heard, you know, originate online? And how do your outreach workers have these conversations with residents when they encounter them? Yeah, I will say it's it's pretty much daily we get some uh, misinformation. We've heard several things such as religious reasons, people's faith, just inherently believing that they're protected from the virus due to their faith. They're protected from even needing the vaccine due to their faith. Um, we've had people saying they're just waiting to see what happens um, instead of getting the vaccine right away. And it ties a bit into what Nora spoke about with the general mistrust for uh, health professionals and even the federal government, and as well as the timeline in which these vaccines were developed. Um, our community members pretty much meet community, uh, community health workers meet community members pretty much where they are. So we just, we don't give up. <laughs> we continue the conversation. It's really one-on-one -on -one, uh, picking the community members' minds about what they've heard and seen online and uh, trying to just debunk some of those myths as best as we, we can. It's it's not an easy, it's not an easy task, I will say. Um, we've, we've managed to convert, if you will, some people from previous thought processes and get them vaccinated, but it's 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 a bit of a heavy lift and we just keep plugging on. When we talk about these conspiracies that are perpetuated on uh, social media platforms, can you give us an example? You said that you're encountering these, you know, almost every day. And so would be what is an example of a um, something you're hearing that um, and then the fact that you're going back time and time again, continuing to have that conversation, Dion? Yeah. So like I mentioned before, people are just saying the vaccines are were developed too quickly. So they don't trust something of that sort to go in their bodies, right? They don't know the history. And we, I feel we, didn't, we don't spend enough time talking about how the vaccines were developed and why they are safe. Um, so we, we are a, a Hispanic Health Council try to do that. We make sure that we, we give some background information and tell them in, in, in as layman term as we can, how the vaccines work. Um, we've heard things such as, you know, a lot of people um, have general historical mistrust of the healthcare system, just because of how, how it's been over the years. Um, we've had people cite the Tuskegee syphilis study and say this is similar to that, the vaccines being distributed and given out and they're free and, and they're accessible. And so they worry that it's something that's being pushed on them for the benefit of the government. Um, We've heard some people just believing that they're immune because they had a previous infection. So very, very um, interesting things. Um, I spoke to a lady recently who told me she saw something on the internet that she could turn into a zombie if she got the vaccine. And I personally saw that as well. Of course, I didn't uh, internalize that and I kind of just pushed it off, but she's still not vaccinated for that reason.
And so some of the things that you shared uh, are uh, concerns and, you know, we can go back to, you know, trust in institutions and in government. But that zombie anecdote, I mean, to me, that's a conspiracy. That's a garbage that really needs to be fleshed out. But to do it in a way that people don't feel attacked. Right, Dion? Right. Exactly. So uh, with this particular lady, we, we, we just keep talking to her. You know, we just keep talking to her and showing her the facts. And obviously she's seeing that community members are being vaccinated, especially because we have a clinic on site. We have a, um, a partnership with the Hartford Healthcare Neighborhood Initiative. They come to our office um, on Park Street in Hartford to give vaccines, among other services that they provide for free. So um, this lady sometimes spends some time in that area and she's aware of people coming in and out and getting vaccinated. So I think with seeing that and, and just continuing to talk to her and not give up, we'll be able to get her in. You're hearing Dion Cote here on Where We Live, Director of Wellness and Health Manage Management at Hispanic Health Council, as we talk again about COVID misinformation in the Hispanic community, how local groups and healthcare providers are working to dispel these myths. Again, the goal to improve vaccination rates. Uh, joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Suzanne Lagarde, CEO of Fairhaven Community Healthcare. That's a network of 14 healthcare centers across Southern Connecticut, serving 30,000 residents. Dr. Lagarde, welcome back to the show. Thanks very much for asking me. <clears throat> now, you and others have been involved in uh, Vaccinate Fairhaven, uh, this program that rolled out. Tell us more about you know, how many doors you knocked on and what have been the outcomes. Absolutely. So, uh, as you know, vaccines became available more or less around the first of the year. Uh, like many other healthcare providers, Fairhaven Community Healthcare was out there. Uh, we were uh, making ourselves available, vaccinating as much as we could. And we rapidly realized that we were not really vaccinating the people literally down the street from us. We were vaccinating many people from all, literally all parts of Connecticut, but we were missing uh, our neighbors. And that was obviously a, a huge concern. Uh, so we talked to some of our local partners um, uh, and we put together a program that we eventually uh, called Vaccinate Fairhaven. But what this was, was we amassed over 400 local volunteers, literally many of them residents of Fairhaven, which is our, our main uh, service area. Uh, and we trained them. Uh, we uh, educated them on, on the truths about around vaccines. Uh, at that time, we were vaccinating every day, uh, six days a week at our local high school, Wilbur Cross High School. And uh, in mid-March, we uh, launched Vaccinate Fairhaven, where we literally knocked on every door in Fairhaven. That's 5,642 doors. It obviously took us a, around six weeks to knock on every door, but we did it through this uh, program of literally neighbor going to neighbor. We trained the, the, the neighbors. Uh, uh, each door was knocked on by two people, one at least one of whom uh, was bilingual and, could, and, and was in, in most instances a neighbor and could educate their, their, their colleagues, their friends about the importance of vaccination, address questions. Um, we provided uh, appointments on the spot. We subsequently have provided a one-on-one -on -one transportation through uh, M7 rides for anyone who wanted a, 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 a taxi ride to Wilbur Cross. 
Um, and uh, I'm really proud to announce that at this stage of the game, we've, we've administered to date over 27,000 doses of vaccine. That's all, all, all kinds, first dose, second dose, booster, uh, et cetera. And uh, roughly 60 to 70% of those who have received um, vaccines from Fairhaven Community Healthcare are people of color, uh, most of whom live in our community. And I just want to emphasize, although we were clearly a big player in this effort, uh, we were not the only player. This was very much a collaboration, a coming together of the Fairhaven community to take care of the Fairhaven community. So hearing those numbers, Dr. Lagarde, you know, it's also, is it safe to say that, you know, these disparities that we saw earlier on when the, the vaccine was available and the numbers uh, were abysmal in, with uptake in, in both Black and Hispanic communities, those numbers are now narrowing? Oh, absolutely. Certainly in our experience. And, and and I think there are many reasons for that. So early on, you all remember, right, there was, you know, demand far outpaced mm-hmm. supply. So there was this frantic um, demand for for to get vaccine to get vaccinated um, and uh, the mechanisms in place, um, perhaps unintentionally, clearly disenfranchised. Uh, people of color, you know, for our, in our instance, a largely Hispanic community. So the uh, system that was uh, offered through the CDC for getting an appointment for a vaccine is something called VAMS, Vaccine Administration Management System. And it was a, a system that was online. You needed to have access to a computer. You needed to have broadband. You needed to have an email. And initially, you needed to speak English because it was mm-hmm. only available in English. Clearly, that disenfranchised uh, yep. the, the population that we needed to serve. So when we recognize that, we disengaged ourselves from that process and and utilized, you know, more word of mouth, uh, you know, reaching out to our community as mechanisms for getting people in in the door. Um, like you've heard from our other guests this morning, uh, that's changed. We now have an ample supply of vaccine, uh, and now we're really in the still though in the in the. Um, game, if you will, of of one-on-one is really what works the best. So I'll give you a, for instance, uh, currently we test, uh, we are testing every day, Monday through Friday. And with the recent upsurge in both Delta and now Omicron, we're definitely seeing an increased demand in our community. We have a walk-up facility uh, because we know that many of our, our, our uh, immediate, our neighbors don't have access to cars to go to other locations that are primarily drive-through. And um, we're using that testing opportunity uh, to educate at the same time on the assumption that some people who are coming, they're coming because they're concerned, right? They've been exposed. Maybe they have a minor symptom. And we, um, while we certainly test them because that's what they're there for, we also take the opportunity to ask if they've been fully vaccinated and if not, try to provide them with answers to their questions and their concerns and, and, and accurate information. Well, it's good to hear about these efforts. Dr. Suzanne Lagarde, again, she is with or CEO of Fairhaven Community Healthcare, this network of 14 healthcare centers across southern Connecticut. Thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Also with us on Zoom, Dion Cote, Director of Wellness and Health Management at Hispanic Health Council. Dion, thank you. Thank you.
You've been listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. We're going to continue talking about um, this uh, conversation after the break when we hear from another community group creating online content to help dispel myths around COVID-19 and vaccinations. Before we get to that, Connecticut Public is holding a short one-week pledge drive to remind you listener support keeps the programs that you hear on the air. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. During the pandemic, Junta for Progressive Action, an advocacy group serving New Haven's Latinx community, expanded their digital presence. A video series called My Vaccination Story features community members and even Junta case managers sharing why getting vaccinated was important to them. Let's take a listen. I was hesitant to get the vaccine, uh, but decided to get vaccinated so that we can move forward together. Lo hice en conciencia por mí, por mi familia y por la comunidad. I wanted to get the vaccine specifically because I have a daughter. Fue por la, mi salud, you know, por la salud mía y porque yo no podía salir de mi casa, ni iglesia, ningún sitio. Those were some of the testimonials in English and Spanish. The last speaker was Maria, who said she got vaccinated because she wanted to go to church and really just to be able to leave her house. Joining us now on Zoom to tell us more is Bruni Pizarro, Executive Director at Junta for Progressive Action. Bruni, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So that series really spotlighting local vaccination stories. You know, when did this start and what was the reaction from the community? So Junta for Progressive Action is the oldest Latinx-led multi-service agency in the greater New Haven area. And we never did community health work per se, but because we saw that there was a need for trusted messengers in the community, and we knew that we've been building trust in the community for so many years, we knew we had to help uh, efforts with vaccination equity, and we knew it was going to be a multidimensional approach. So this wasn't just going to be a one one sort of one size fits all approach, as um, Nora eloquently stated earlier. Latinx the Latinx community is not a monolith, and the beauty of Junta is because we're Latina led, Latinx led, BIPOC led, we understand our community very very well. We understand the needs, we listen, and we understand how to adapt to the needs of our constituency. Um, and so we work also with partners uh, that have been incredible in this work and have motivated us and fueled us and jammed with us to get creative, right? Uh, one of our partners is um, also Latina, uh, Maritza Bond, who's the Director of Public Health for the City of New Haven uh, Health Department. She's been an incredible support in really thinking things through, uh, informing us of what's going on in the community, and then really partnering with us on our COVID pop-up clinics, which we've been doing many um, since early this year uh, at Junta and in uh, other sites throughout the city. Um, and we have an amazing volunteer creative director who's also Latinx, Latino. His name is Daniel Pizarro. He helped create a lot of um, the video content as a creative director. Um, and and his, his, just in case, shameless plug here, but his uh, email is <laughs> Daniel dot, uh, sorry, Daniel-Pizarro, P-I-Z-A-R-R-O, dot com. Um, and I think it's important to acknowledge our partners in this work because without them, we wouldn't be here. Um, we're a small organization, um, but we have to think very creatively. We are under-resourced under in, many, in many respects, 
But even though you, you know, how do you leverage the resources that you do have, which may not be in capital form necessarily, but they can be in brilliance and innovation and creativity. And I think there's something beautiful about working with others who are, are coming from these communities. Maritza, our director Bond is from Fairhaven originally. And so she understands deeply the issues that are concerning this community. Um, working with Daniel, who's also Latinx from immigrant families and myself coming from New York City. I think that when we think about myths and we think about how to dispel myths and I think we have to kind of, in some respects, like that, that is true. And while there are myths circulating, there's also this sort of intangible of like humanity and understanding like we are all like humans and connected and how do we like respect each other? Like where are we at? Like where's everyone at? And so I think that's part of like where this video series came from and this film series came from is like understanding each unique particularity and like someone can relate to that story on a, on a micro on a macro level. You don't even have to be Latinx to say, hey, you know what? I, I want to go to church too. I happen to be African-American or Caucasian or indigenous or Asian. And I can relate to Maria's story or Rosaida's story for, you know, keeping her family safe. I think that these are sort of not exclusive to the Latinx community, but also invisible to the world, right? Because this is this happens, these simple things that people take for granted are huge and they build up and they can lead to mental health outcomes if, if you know, limitations in quality of life. And so we want to, in some respects, to celebrate these perspectives. And that's where this sort of like creative, multidimensional approach came from. I liked how you talked about this is about humanity and thinking about how um, when you hear these stories, especially in this video series, uh, how people can relate to that, right? And I wanted to get uh, Nora Benavidez's reaction uh, to this outreach work being done by Junta. Uh, uh, Nora, you're still with us from Digital Justice, uh, Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at Free Press. Uh, tell us your thoughts. You know, it's so interesting. I, I think about, I love that, uh, Bruni, you, you talk about the micro and the macro, because that's really when I work on and think about the problems of disinformation, I think that it its intent is to divide us. And stories, however corny or trite it sounds, stories that elevate our connectivity and humanity are really the only path forward. Um, having trusted messengers, as you said, to convey some of this I think most of the individual stories I know about and the way we've seen attitudinal changes really come from individual one-on-one -on -one work where someone is moved by a story from someone they know and they trust and they turn to. And that's the, the hardest like nut to crack because it is so difficult to scale that, but it's really important. And it just sounds like fantastic work um, in the community and, and really for the community. And Nora, when we started the conversation, we were talking about how disinformation is intended to drive divisions, uh, you know, the solutions uh, from the community uh, up, uh, hearing from Bruni about uh, these ways of sharing stories and connecting. And if somebody um, is is worried about the vaccine or wants more information, you know, there's a way to do that uh, that's helpful. Yeah, I think there is a way to do it that's helpful. You know, instead of calling people out, shaming them for sharing something that's false or believing something that you may personally know is absurd based on your own medical expertise or your awareness of uh, the, you know, efficacy of the vaccine, it really just doesn't work to 
call people out like uh, like that. And instead, I often say, can we call people in? Can we find ways that we are more connected and what we have in common um, to ask questions about people's values? You know, like, what are the underlying reasons you believe what you do? And if someone is moved to go back to church and that's why they want to get the vaccine, that's a great story to elevate. Um, so I, I think it's all really part of what this individualized process looks like. And um, and it's the work that has to be done over the coming months as we're seeing, you know, a rise in the Omicron variant. And also, and, Lucy, thank you. Thank you ahead. for that. But people also want to see themselves in the story. And I think that that's the beauty of like organizations like Junta, that you see a case manager and you know them for years and you build a relationship and maybe that can actually start to create a different type of change, a different type of environment beyond the clinical setting to get a vaccine beyond, not that that's a bad thing, but it's just a different approach. I mean, we have our COVID pop-up clinics and we throw a DJ up there with loud music and cultural coatings. And, you know, you have director Bond right there dancing salsa with us, with the mayor, Mayor Justin Elliker, and we're dancing salsa. Like all those cultural cues and cultural coatings are very unique to the Latinx community. And it may some, while it may attract some, it may not attract others, but, it has definitely, we've had lines of 400 folks outside wrapped around Junta, two, three blocks out the door to get a vaccine in the summer. And that speaks for itself. Like we have to start trying new things and get creative and, and bring in thinkers, creators, content creators, um, artists, um, and also people from the community that can speak to specific nuance. Um, I think that that's what these videos portray. Mm -hmm. And I think we can't have a status quo situation anymore. I think the status quo situation did not work for folks on the margins in the past, pre-COVID, with the health outcomes as they were, um, and uh, for the Latinx community and BIPOC communities in general. And I don't think it's going to be, you know, I think we have to move beyond, move the needle a different direction. And I think that's what we're trying to do. We'll have to leave it there. A pleasure to hear from you, Bruni Pizarro, again, Executive Director for Junta for Progressive Action. Hearing about this uh, video series and the work that Junta continues to do, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Also with us, Nora Benavides, Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at Free Press. Nora, thank you. Thank you so much, Lucy. Katie Pelica produced today's show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have you supported the conversations you hear on Where We Live yet? It's Connecticut Public Radio's end of the year fundraising campaign. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how to support it. 